The man sat up in the snow for a moment and struggled for calmness. Then he pulled on his mittens by means of his teeth and got upon his feet. He glanced down at first in order to assure himself that he was really standing up, for the absence of sensation in his feet left him unrelated to the earth. His erect position in itself started to drive the webs of suspicion from the dog's mind, and when he spoke promptly, with the sound of whiplashes in his voice, the dog rendered its customary allegiance and came to him. As it came within reaching distance, the man lost his control. His arms flashed out to the dog, and he experienced genuine surprise when he discovered that his hands could not clutch, that there was neither bend nor feeling in the fingers. He had forgotten for the moment that they were frozen and that they were freezing more and more. All this happened quickly, and before the animal could get away, he encircled its body with his arms, he sat down in the snow, and in this fashion held the dog, while it snarled and whined and struggled. But it was all he could do. Hold its body, encircled in his arms, and sit there. He realized he could not kill the dog. There was no way to do it. With his helpless hands, he could neither draw nor hold his sheath knife, nor throttle the animal. He released it, and it plunged wildly away, with tail between its legs, and still snarling. It halted forty feet away and surveyed him curiously, with ears sharply pricked forward. The man looked down at his hands in order to locate them, and found them hanging on the ends of his arms. It struck him as curious that one should have to use his eyes in order to find out where his hands were. He began threshing his arms back and forth, beating the mittened hands against his sides. He did this for five minutes violently, and his heart pumped enough blood to the surface to put a stop to his shivering. But no sensation aroused in his hands. He had an impression that they were hung like weights at the end of his arms, but when he tried to run the impression down, he could not find it. A certain fear of death, dull and, and oppressive, came to him. The fear quickly became poignant as he realized that it was no longer a mere matter of freezing his fingers and toes or of losing his hands and feet, but that it was a matter of life and death with the chances against him. This threw him into a panic, and he turned and ran up the creek bed along the old dim trail. The dog joined in behind and kept up with him. He ran blindly without intention, in fear such as he had never known in his life. Slowly as he plowed and floundered through the snow, he began to see things again. The banks of the creek, the old timber jams, the leafless aspens in the sky. The running made him feel better. He did not shiver. Maybe if he ran on his feet, he would thaw out. And anyway, if he ran far enough, he would reach camp and the boys. Without a doubt, he would lose some fingers and toes and some of his face, but the boys would take care of him and save the rest of him when he got there. At the same time, there was another thought in his mind that said he could never get to camp. And the boys... 
that it was too many miles away, that the freezing had too great a start on him, and that he would soon be stiff and dead. This thought kept in the background and refused and he refused to consider. Sometimes it pushed itself forward and demanded to be heard, but he thrust it back and strove to think of other things. It struck him as curious that he could run at all on feet so frozen that he could not feel them when he struck the earth and took the weight of his body. He seemed to himself to skim along the surface and have no connection with the earth. Somewhere he had once a wing somewhere he had once seen a winged mercury and he wondered if mercury felt as he felt when skimming over the earth. His theory of running until he reached camp and the boys had one flaw in it. He lacked the endurance. Several times he stumbled and finally he tottered, crumpled and fell. When he tried to rise, he failed. He must sit and rest, he decided. And next, he would merely walk and keep on going. As he sat and regained his breath, he noted that he was feeling quite warm and comfortable. He was not shivering and it seemed that a warm glow had come to his chest and trunk. And yet, when he touched his nose or cheeks, there was no sensation. Running would not thaw them out, nor would it thaw out his hands and feet. Then a thought came to him that the frozen portions of his body must be extending. He tried to keep this thought down, to forget it, to think of something else. He was aware of the panicky feeling that it caused, and he was afraid of the panic. He, the thought, but the thought asserted itself and persisted until it produced a vision of his body totally frozen. This was too much, and he made another wild run along the trail. Once he slowed down to walk, but the thought of freezing extending itself made him run again, and all the time the dog ran with him at his heels. When he fell down a second time, it curled its tail over its forefeet and sat in front of him, facing him, curiously eager and intent. The warmth and security of the animal angered him, and he cursed it till it flattened down its ears appeasingly. This time the shivering came upon the man quickly. He was losing in his battle with the frost. It was keeping into his it was creeping into his body from all sides. The thought of it drove him on, but he ran no more than a hundred feet when he staggered and pitched headlong. It was his last panic. When he had recovered his breath and control, he sat up and entertained in his mind the conception of meeting death with dignity. However, the conception did not come to him in such terms. His idea of it was that he had been making a fool of himself, running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Such was the simile that occurred to him. Well, he was bound to freeze anyway, and he might as well take it decently. With his newfound peace of mind came the first glimmerings of drowsiness. A good idea, he thought, to sleep off to death. It was like taking an anesthetic. Freezing was not so bad as people thought. There were lots of worse ways to die. He pictured the boys finding his body the next day. Suddenly he found himself with them, coming along the trail and looking for himself. And still with them, he came around a turn in the trail and found himself lying in the snow. 
he did not belong with himself anymore, for even then he was out of himself, standing with the boys and looking at himself in the snow. It certainly was cold, was his thought. When he got back to the States, he could tell the folks what real cold was. He drifted on from this to a vision of the old-timer on Sulphur Creek. He could see him quite clearly, warm and comfortable, smoking a pipe. You're right, old hoss, you're right, the man mumbled to the old-timer of Sulphur Creek. Then... The man drowsed off into what seemed to him the most comfortable and satisfying sleep he had ever known. The dog sat facing him and waiting. The brief day drew to a close in a long, slow twilight. There were no signs of a fire to be made, and besides, never in the dog's experience had it known a man to sit like that in the snow and make no fire. As the twilight drew on, its eager yearning for the fire mastered it, and with a great lifting and shifting of forefeet, it whined softly, then flattened its ears down in anticipation of chiding by the man, but the man remained silent. Later, the dog whined loudly, and still later, it crept close to the man and caught the scent of death. This made the animal bristle and back away. A little longer it delayed, howling under the stars that leaped and danced and shone brightly in the cold sky. Then it turned and trotted up the trail in the direction of the camp it knew. Where were the other food providers and fire providers? The End of How to Build a Fire by Jack London